Well, the title of tonight's message is The Conclusion. I know I got a really great one tonight. The Conclusion. That's our title because that is what chapter 34 of Deuteronomy represents to the book of Deuteronomy. It ends with this final chapter, chapter 34. It's a short chapter, 12 verses in chapter 34. Now, when you think about the title, The Conclusion, it's fitting because it is the conclusion of Deuteronomy, but it's also a record of the conclusion of Moses' life. So it primarily focuses on telling the story of how Moses' life came to an end. Now, Moses is one of the key characters, I would say, in the Old Testament. The fact of the matter is that God loves all of his children the same. He has a mission for all of our lives. He had a mission for all the lives of those in the Old Testament, but he had a very specific and public and very well-known mission for Moses. And Moses takes up a fair amount of the narrative as you look at even the books of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all having been written by him. And if you think about the things that he had a part of, you have quite a bit of content there between Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, of course, being this summary statement of Moses' whole life as he speaks his final thoughts and communicates his final instructions and reminders to the people of the nation of Israel. Now, because all of the Bible was written for our benefit, he communicated those things through the leading of the Spirit of God as God breathed his word through Moses. He, he wrote those things to you and to me for our benefit and for our learning, for our instruction. And so, as we have looked through the book of Deuteronomy, it has focused very heavily on Moses and what Moses wishes to communicate to these people that he loves so dearly. He's been a father figure of sorts to this entire nation. And as he has been involved in their lives, he sees that his time is coming to an end. And so we observe that the entire book of Deuteronomy was a book of reminders, a book of remembrance, a book of instruction as Moses sought to pass along as a father would to his child at the end of his life, these critical truths. And so, naturally then, it's fitting that the book would end with the story of how Moses passed on or how Moses died. Now, it also serves as a transition into the next major chapter of the biblical narrative. So this chapter here, talking about the death of Moses or how Moses' life came to an end, it also serves as this natural transition into the next chapter. And the next chapter is going to be this conquest of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So it's a necessary segue as we sort of close the door on the story of Moses' life and turn the page, if you will, to this next section of the biblical account this conquest of the promised land. The, the next major character then, of course, shifts to Joshua, who has been a prevalent character in the books leading up to this as well, as he's been working alongside of, ministering alongside of Moses for a large chunk of Moses' life, frankly. And so now as we come into this next chapter, the nation's going to move on without Moses. Moses' time has come to an end. And it's this chapter is a way to sort of pass that torch between the life of Moses to the life of Joshua. And we'll see that happen in this chapter. Now it also provides closure and summary of the key aspects of Moses' faith in ministry. So when you're talking about such a prominent character, it's you, it would be, you'd be remiss to have the story end just dangling in thin air without there being a final ending to it or some type of closure to it. And so this chapter serves as closure for Moses' faith, talking about Moses' faith and also what his ministry had been over the years. And so that's what chapter 34 is all about. It's 12 verses. Lord willing, we'll get through it here tonight. So if you haven't already, turn to... The conclusion of Deuteronomy, which is chapter 34, and we'll dive in and work through this here this evening. Now, this first section, the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 34, I have subtitled, 
One final encounter. One final encounter. So let's read and we'll pull out some of the observations that we can and applications from these first four verses. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, where is, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, to the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So here we have, I think, a fitting end to Moses' life. Fitting in the sense that it ends with this one final encounter with God. It begins, though, with mountain climbing at 120 years old. That's what happens there in verse 1, the beginning of verse 1. Moses went up to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah. Now, top of Pisgah probably refers to a ridge near the summit of Mount Nebo. I can't be certain of that because nobody else is certain of that either. But there's a mountain. They're not 100% which modern-day mountain that might refer to. But there is a mountain there that is across from Jericho. And it apparently is tall enough that it affords some view of the promised land across the Jordan River. The view must be or is extensive on all sides. And I would say that there's some and I'm not dogmatic about this, you can take from it whatever you want, but though one could normally view the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, from Mount Nebo, or no, they normally could not. So you normally couldn't see this area that God describes here from the top of Mount Nebo, not apart from supernatural enablement or God making it possible for this to happen. Now, Again, I haven't been there personally. I can't say that for a fact, but from the reading that I did about this, you just cannot, with your physical eyes, see as far as this area that is described here in verses 2, 3, and, well, 2 and 3. And so, what, does that, what is the takeaway from that? The takeaway from that, from my perspective, is that God is a promise-keeping God. He told Moses that before you die, I will show you the promised land. He brought him to a natural vantage point that overlooked the promised land and he made it possible for Moses to see this area that is described here. So, not everybody can agree about what exactly this area even describes, how much of the promised land we're talking about here. I would take the position that it describes the vast majority, if not all of the promised land and that God made it possible by being a limitless God to keep his promise to Abra- or his promise to Moses to show him this land that he originally had promised to Abraham. And so I don't have any trouble accepting that as the solution to what a lot of people have made a big deal about, that this land, if you were to plot it out and look at how much, the di- how much distance there is in terms of as much as 100 plus miles, that it's not humanly possible to see that. We're not dealing with our human strength alone. We're dealing with an all-powerful God who is a promise-keeping God. And if God brought Moses to this place, he kept his promise and he made it possible for Moses to not just see a vision, but he made it possible for Moses to see the promised land because that's what he told Moses he would do. So even though the land has not, had not yet been distributed, the viewing of the land is described partially by tribal territories. And I think that's interesting. Because there's already this sense that there's going to be an allocation of this land to different groups. The other thing is that there's some indication of forward-looking with this as you see that this land is not going to just be one homogenous land uh, per se, though it is a homogenous land. It's going to be broken up into different tribal regions within the nation of Israel. And so the description, it moves from Moses' point of view toward the north and then counterclockwise through the land 
if you were to look at the way the different territories are described here. So I don't want to make a lot about that. I don't think there's a lot to mine from that other than that God is an amazing God who keeps his word. And so that's one thing I'd take from that. Now another thing is that this is a demonstration of grace. So the fact that Mount that Moses was mountain climbing at 120 years old, that's great. Uh, the fact that God showed him and kept his promises and showed him the promised land, that's encouraging. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God. But this whole thing is a demonstration of grace, and I think that is even more what we should focus on as we look at these first four verses. When you look at verse you know, 1b through verse 3, and you see this description of God revealing to Moses the promised land, allowing his eyes to be fixed on this land of promise that had been so central to God's instruction and dealing with Moses through Moses' adult life, certainly the last 80 years of Moses' life, from, certainly from age, age 40 to age 120. Now, how much before that? I don't know how much Moses was focused on God being a promise-keeping God who would take his people and deliver them to the land of rest that he had sworn to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure how much Moses, I know he was taught about those things. I I know he had to take God at his word, but so much of his life after his calling in verse, uh, at age 40, all the way through age 120 here, was focused on God bringing the nation to his place of rest, the promised land. And so there was a lot of trials and tribulations along the way, but that was the focal point of the vast majority of Moses' life. So, back to a demonstration of grace. Why is this a, a demonstration of grace? Because failing to trust God results in a variety of consequences. That is a fixed fact. And so Moses had been prohibited from entering into the land, but yet God in his grace, he still allowed Moses to see the land which wasn't punishment, that was God's mercy and graciousness. So let's take a look, just for reminders, about Moses' failure that had led to his exclusion from the promised land to begin with. So turn if you will, we're going to do a little bit of page turning tonight. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 20. And let's just look at the biblical record of what had happened in Moses' life that had led to God saying, you're not going into the promised land. Despite having been such a prominent factor in the story of the nation of Israel, despite despite having been so close to me, and we'll see that later, how close Moses was to God, this failure on your part, which represents a lack of faith on your part, this is going to have dire consequences, one of which, though, is going to be you're not going to physically enter into my rest physically. And in that moment of unbelief, you didn't enter into my rest temporally or spiritually either. And so let's just read this starting in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron, so we have another issue here where there's not enough water. So that's the context here. There's not enough water. So verse 6, So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to, to them. In a time of need, God reveals himself as the one who can answer our problems can actually help us in time of need. That's the faithful character of our God. And so when they went to the Lord in prayer, uh, he appeared to them. Now, he appeared to them physically here, but he appears to us in our lives when we call out to him as well, too. He's always faithful. He's always present. He's a present, a very present and near God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us and to always be receptive to our prayers. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, 
to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So you think about that. Even this word hollow is to show me holy or to reveal me to be holy. It's an issue of respect. You did not believe me or respect me in the eyes of the children of Israel. And there was consequences associated with it. So you think about the easy application or correlation to your life. God has moments in our lives that would be described as times that there's nothing to drink. Times where our mouths are dry and parched. We're wanting for water. We're lacking something that we need. And God says, in those moments, at those times in your life, I need you to believe me. I need you to trust me. I need you to walk by faith and not by sight. I need you to adopt a posture of humility. And I need you to have this posture of dependence where you're going to rely on me and depend on me to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Now that's true in terms of any kind of a trial. They might be physical, emotional, relational, financial, any kind of a trial in our lives. He, he says, in effect, you're not going to be able to handle this on your own, but I can handle it. Will you trust me? Will you give it to me? Will you let me undertake so that you can enjoy me even in the face of this time of difficulty, this season of parched land that's in front of you? Can you trust me with that in parched lips? And can you trust me to bring that refreshment into your life when you need it most? Now, does that mean that God removes the trials? No. He did here, but does that mean that he always does that? No. Does it mean that he physically eases the hardship that we're going through? No. He doesn't always take that away. But he says, you can enjoy my rest, you can enjoy the nourishment of the water that I can give you in moments of dryness, in moments of difficulty, in moments when the obstacle seems so fierce and so great in front of you. So that's an obvious overlap into our lives, but that was the failure in Moses' life. And the fallout of it was that God said, I'm not going to allow you to bring the nation into the land. And you think about what caused Moses' failure here. As you read through that narrative there in Numbers chapter 20 and you're reminded of what happened there, what jumps out at you as sort of the key cause of that failure? Well, there's really two parts to it. One is disobedience, a heart of disobedience. One is a heart of pride. And both of those are evidence there and both of those are oftentimes responsible for the failures in our lives. Now, disobedience was God said, speak to the rock and Moses struck the rock pride was God saying I've got this gather the people and let them see the salvation of the Lord and Moses gathered the people and he said must we must Aaron and I solve your problems there's a lot of pride in that when they had only been human conduits that God was working through all along see there's no place for pride in serving the Lord when we remember that but for the grace of God I am what I am. No, I am what I am because of the grace of God. But you could say the opposite of it too. Apart from God's grace, I'm a wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Without me you can do nothing. When we adopt that posture and that mentality where we say, God, you don't need me but you still want me anyway and you use me anyway and you work in my life when I'm a vessel, a clay pot that you can work through, when I'm a conduit for your strength and the power of your spirit to reveal itself, then you can do anything. But not because of me, in spite of me, because of your great love for me as you work within me. See, there's no room for pride in that because we remember the pit that we were dug from. How hard should it be for us to stay humble? It shouldn't be as hard as it is, right? You know, we all have a problem with pride to a different degree. Some people don't recognize it, but it's pride when you're trying to fix your own problems. It's pride when you see yourself in a better light than you ought to. 
It's pride when you won't give things to the Lord and you say, I can do this. I can handle this. Because the reality is you can't. It's only your pride that thinks that you can do something that you actually cannot. And so even very often in our lives where we're not proud in the sense of maybe we're strutting around like a peacock, we're not strutting around with this sense of look at me, but we're being prideful when we refuse to give God things that we could never handle on our own anyway. There's that underlying assumption that I can fix this, I can cure this, I could make this right. God's saying, no, you can't, but I can. I'm in the business of making art out of ashes. I'm in the business of making things new. I'm in the business of transformation. That's what I do. That's the kind of God I am. Do you believe that? Will you trust me with that? Will you give up on yourself enough to let me work in your life? And those are the kinds of things that Moses struggled with at periodically, and he struggled with it in this moment. And in this moment, that particular failure ended up having this consequence. So when you think about the consequence, it should remind you of what Moses reminded the nation of, that love involves discipline at times. He told them, he reminded them in Deuteronomy that God would there would be consequences associated with turning away from God. That they wouldn't thrive physically or spiritually if they tried to live life apart from him. That if they allowed their normal independent streak, their normal rebellion, their normal, their normal I can do this to creep in, that that would be the equivalent of choosing death instead of choosing the life that was available by living life in dependence on him in close proximity to him, keeping our focus on him. And so Moses has been reminding them, them of that all, all along, and he himself is an example of that, how God disciplines at times out of love, and there was a consequence associated with this. Now, discipline, though, is seasoned with mercy and grace. So when you think about discipline that is, comes from a place of love, as you think about discipline that is intended to benefit the one that is loved dearly, that is being disciplined, the recipient of the discipline. If it's all founded in love and a desire that the best interests of that person be elevated or put forward, and if God is good all the time and he's the one doing the discipline, then his love, his loving discipline is always seasoned with mercy and grace. And what a great example of that here, back to being a little bit long-winded here on this, on this section, but Moses seeing the promised land, that's a demonstration of God's grace. And what I mean by that is God allowed Moses to see the promised land before he died. That was mercy. God didn't have to do that, but God chose to do that anyway. The sight of every part of the land on the east and west was a miracle. Again, that's my interpretation of it, uh, based on some of the logistics of seeing that apart from a miraculous intervention. So it was a miracle. God allowed that, even his discipline of Moses, to be seasoned with his mercy and his grace. He allowed, through that miraculous intervention, Moses' sight to be great enough so he could catch a glimpse of the entire glorious land that God had promised, which he himself was never going to tread foot on. That's God's grace to do that. Now imagine the delight Moses experienced through seeing the inheritance intended for the nation. Moses had a servant-mindedness towards the nation, and so as a parent that would want what's best for their children, when God shows them the future, so to speak, when he shows them this is what's coming down the road and it's wonderful, it, it represents my rest, it's a, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, this is what I have planned for your children, so to speak. As Moses saw the nation in a paternal way, he'd be overjoyed to breathe his last breaths and to end his life seeing the goodness of God as it was intended to benefit these people within the nation that he loved so dearly. Wouldn't that bring you joy to have a sense that the future that was waiting for your children after you were gone was so bright? Now, 
The reality is that there had been some foreshadowing where Moses was also fully aware that the future would have some real downside to it too, that it wouldn't all be wonderful, that it wouldn't all be lovely. But I think Moses was probably overjoyed to be able to see the promised land, the land that had been such a focus of his goal and what he was looking towards and working, working his way towards as they went through the, the desert and even those, the wanderings after that with the generation of disobedience. So I think that was probably something that was very delightful to Moses. Now, also imagine, though, the remorse that Moses likely experienced. See, so you have kind of a bittersweet thing. What a, what a perfect example of that phrase, bittersweet. It must have been sweet for him to see what God was going to put into the lives of the nation without him. But it must have been bitter to see what God was going to put in the lives of the nation without him. So there have probably been t- both aspects to that. And you think about your own life. Failure at times includes consequences that are long-lasting, some of them permanent. God doesn't want us to dwell on regret, remorse, to focus on that, but do you still feel that at times? Yeah, that's natural. And when those feelings crop up, what is God's solution to that? His solution to that is to look ahead. You can't change the past. The past is irreparable. But he says, look out at the irresistible future now. That's what I need you to do, child. Now, Moses' life is ending, so there's the future that he would have been looking forward to would have been an eternal future because his time on earth had come to an end. But in your life, as you think about bittersweet moments, things that decisions and choices that have represented an unwillingness to trust God in your life and the consequences, some of them that have come from that, as those crop into your mind, they creep into your mind, that regret and that remorse, sometimes guilt and shame come with it. It happens in my life. And when that creeps in, does God want you to dwell on that? No. He says, leave the irreparable past in my capable hands. And he says, son, I want you to step out. Step out into the future because the future with me is always bright. Forget the things that are behind. Now, if you had a chance to do it over again, would you do it different? Perhaps. But you know what? You'd probably do those things different, but you'd make other mistakes. They'd just be replaced by something different. And God says, you've got to leave that behind. You can't dwell on that. You can't focus on that. You've got to be looking forward. So that's just an aside. Now, a nice way to go out is what I think verse 4 stands for. A nice way to go out. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. And what do I mean when I say a nice way to go out? Well, to have your life end is what I mean by that. But like many of the prophets, God spoke to Moses regularly and directly. And although many people in the Bible demonstrated a greater than normal closeness with God, meaning they stood out as sort of highlight people, like their walk of faith, their closeness to God seems greater than the typical person that's recorded. There's a number of them that you could point to. Some of them are mentioned in Hebrews 11, including Moses. But despite the fact that there are quite a few that had or or represented or were examples of a greater than normal closeness to God, Moses is perhaps the ultimate example of intimacy with God. Because God interacted with him in such a physical and personal way. The only person that you would point to maybe in a a more physical physical intimacy and spiritual intimacy way would perhaps be the relationship within the Godhead between Jesus, who is spoken of as the second redeemer or the the better Moses, the greater Moses. Um, But that's within the Godhead, but the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That closeness and that intimacy but you'd be hard-pressed to come up with somebody that you would say has a, a greater example of this closeness or unique relationship with God than Moses. Now, what a way to go out. What I mean by that is, imagine that your final earthly 
encounter is with God himself. Imagine all the ways that you could breathe your last breath. Moses breathed his last breath in the presence of God himself. That was his last human encounter. That's why I call it one final encounter, this four-verse section. He spent that with God. And you think about what are some of the takeaways that you can have from that. Well, the primary subject that's being communicated here in these verses is, one, that God is an intimate, personal, and relational God. He wants to experience life with his children. The other is that God is a faithful God. That's the primary takeaway you should have from verses 1 through 4. God told Moses that he would see the promised land. You can read about that earlier in Deuteronomy. Moses knew that that was what was in front of him. And so, as you're thinking about God's faithfulness, God keeps his word. So what a way to end your life. In the presence of the one who is faithful, being reminded that he's a promise-keeping God, well, what else had he promised? He'd promised that we would have a future, that it would be eternal, an eternal future with him. So as Moses' life came to an end, did he know everything about God? No, but he'd experienced God in a more direct and physical and personal way than we ever will in terms of physical experiences with God. In terms of physical or spiritual closeness, we have the opportunity to live life in close, intimate, experiential fellowship with God too, and that's what our whole study on 1 John has been about. Now, this should give you peace and as it relates to God's promises to you too, as you see God being a promise-keeping God, following through on his promises that he's going to bring the nation into the land of rest, just Moses isn't going to go with him, that Moses is going to get to see this. And that's an amazing way to end your life in the very presence of God. Now, verse 5 and 6, you have the perfect funeral service described. So as you're thinking about funerals and what yours might be like or a memorial service, it doesn't get any better than this. And this is something that every time I go into the Word of God, it doesn't matter how many times, I learn something new. I had glossed over this. I had never made anything of this, verses 5 and 6. I was very familiar with this passage. I know I had been taught about this happening where God took Moses so that he could see the promised land. The passing of the torch to Joshua, very familiar with that. But I was not familiar with this perfect funeral service from verses 5 and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he, capital H, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Now, show of hands, how many of you knew that God did the funeral service for Moses? Okay, I've got one, two, three. Okay, good. That just shows you probably know more than I do. <laughs> what a thing, huh? Un- unbelievable. That could be the only thing we talked about tonight. I don't know of any other example like this. I mean, absolutely amazing. God himself buried Moses in an unknown location. And I just think, man, you get to end your life, your last words, your last breath, your last human, your last interaction is with the God of the universe. And then God does your funeral service. Pretty, uh, pretty amazing to see that. Now, what is he described as? This is something that is fascinating. Verse 5. So, Moses, now I'll put a colon that could describe him now. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now, I, God didn't uh, mark his gravesite with a granite slab with a saying on it. But this is, in effect, a headstone statement here. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Think of the things that you could have on the tombstone, on your tombstone. 
fill in your, put your name in there, put a colon or a dash, and then say, the servant of the Lord or a servant of the Lord. Wouldn't that be a nice way to be described in a history recording of your death? That somebody would take notes of the final statements and events surrounding your death and one of the things they would chose, chose to put in, choose to put in there is describing you as a servant of the Lord. I thought that was really fascinating. And it's a little bit unclear here, but Moses seems to die in God's presence right there. So you have these last moments of intimate fellowship with God, and then God buries Moses in an undisclosed location. Now this is pure speculation. Uh, take, do with it what you will. Why would God do that? Well, perhaps... It was intended to prevent the Israelites from taking Moses' body with them to Canaan. And that would have violated the divine command to disallow Moses from entering into the promised land. So, I don't know. That makes a little bit of sense to me. If it's somebody who had as much impact on the nation as he did, uh, given the precedent with Joseph and his bones being taken from Egypt to the promised land, it's easy to see how maybe people who have a tendency to worship the man instead of the man instead of the God behind the man, that they would want to they would want to do that. And there was no opportunity to to do that. So that's just a little bit of an aside. But now think about this. Moses had the chance to spend his last moments on earth with God, and you've been given the opportunity to spend every moment that you have on earth with God. Now Moses had that opportunity too. Every man or woman of faith from the very beginning till now had a choice every single day to make. Will I choose to live this moment or these moments or this day or this week or this month or this time that God has given me? Will I choose to use that time and spend that time with him? Will I include him in what I'm doing today? Will I include him in what I'm thinking this moment? Or will I I exclude him from that? Now, you think about what an awesome way to die that I would spend my last moments with God. Do you have the opportunity as you pass? As it, it, when you're dying, do you have the opportunity to spend those last moments with God? You certainly do. Do many people do that? Several that I know personally that I've been around as they were dying, yeah, several of them did. Will you? I don't know. Depends, I guess. Could you? Yes. Do you have to wait till then, though? No. Spend your moments with him. Not just your last moment. Spend these moments with him. That's what we've been talking about in First John. I couldn't help but bring it up again. Sorry if that's like beating a dead horse. So then we have a premature death in verse 7. Let's read it. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. So at 120 years old, his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished, and yet he died anyway. Now there's a few things here. I wouldn't say that I'm certain on this point either, but it sure seems like Moses' death was premature. It seems to be implied there. By that statement, his eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished. Now you'd say, 120 years old, how could anybody stand up and say that that wasn't a full life? But yet, if he's described in this way, you'd have to almost say, God through the inspiration of Scripture is telling us that he still had some bounce in his step when he died. He didn't have some kind of a major illness that took him out. He died because the chapter was going to turn. The page was going to turn. That's my take of it. Now, Moses had a self-assessment of his own vigor in chapter 31, verse 2, where he told them that he wasn't able to go in or out of his tent anymore. But both of these statements are thought to be metaphors or figures of speech. What Moses has said or is thought to have been saying in 31.2 is, I'm, I'm too old to keep being the leader to lead you. I can't take you to the next phase. In part because God had said you're not going to take them to the next phase. 
So this phrase here about his eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished, it, it could be taken as a figure of speech too. It could refer to that for a man of his age, he had retained his strength in his mind in a remarkable way. Or it could mean something like Moses met death triumphantly and in full possession of his faculties. So there's a little bit of disagreement about what this means. But I'm more of the view that this is a reference to Moses' death being premature and necessary for the, nature, the nation of Israel to begin its next chapter of leadership and entry into the promised land. So though old, it doesn't seem to be health concerns that limit Moses from going on. That's how I would read this. I would always take the literal reading here versus trying to read something else into it. It seems to be that he, it wasn't some medical concern or health concern that kept him from going on. Moses did not enter Canaan land, which remember Canaan always represents God's rest because he died. That's not why he didn't enter into Canaan land. He didn't, that's not what kept him from it. What kept Moses from entering God's rest was because of his failure at Meribah, failing to trust God. And so it wasn't an issue of Moses ran out of steam. His death is directly related to, in, a, in that moment, not trusting God and there being a consequence to that where God said, your life, though apparently it had enough battery left in the tank or gas left in the tank to have brought the nation into the land, it's not going to be you. And for there to be a full transition of leadership, I'm going to take you home to be with me. Now, if you disagree, that's fine. Uh, I don't think you could be dogmatic about what verse 7 means there, but that's my take on it. Now, verse 8, let's read that. I have it labeled, Will anyone cry when you're gone? The Moses of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. I'm not going to say more about that. fact of the matter is you have an opportunity to impact people. The best way that you can impact people is through your spiritual impact on them while they're alive, while you're alive and they're alive. That will carry on because God's faithful to use that in their lives indefinitely, not because of something you've done, but because God was able to work through you at some particular moments along the way. And that will have an enduring legacy, an enduring effect on their lives. But if you're seeking to have a legacy or to be mourned when you're gone for all of the wonderful things that you've done, all of the, all the good things that you've done in people's lives or all the noteworthy things you've done for society, dream on. The reality is that you're not going to be remembered for those things, and nobody is. History is full of people who have done more amazing things than you ever will, who have long ago been forgotten. And I, I used to, I heard when I was young this thing that was crass but funny. They were like, the, and the question or the, the train of thought was, when's the last time that you thought about Grandpa who passed away years ago? Then the next question was, when was the last time you thought about Great Grandpa or did you even know Great Grandpa? When's the last time you thought about Great Great Grandpa or did you ever meet him? And then the saying was, all of those guys were a lot more likable than you are. How long do you think they'll be thinking about you? The reality, our legacy isn't going to be attached to those things. It's got to be a legacy of faith or there is no legacy. You want to invest in people something that will last long after you're gone. It's going to be by passing on one generation to the next will declare your greatness, will sing your greatness, will declare what kind of a God you are and how amazing you are. Now, verse 9, we have the passing of the torch. This was, again, a necessary chapter. It, it answers this uh, necessary question of transition between Moses to Joshua. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. He became the next leader. It was complete. And Moses' death was sort of a necessary part of that. Now, the spirit of wisdom, it can refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's indwelling was temporary. It was not permanent in the Old Testament. You could look at Isaiah 11.2 for a reference very similar to that. Or it could just refer to Joshua's inner spirit. Either way, God gave Joshua supernatural skill and ability and giftedness to lead the nation of Israel. Now, the last three verses here. 
10, 11, and 12. We have one of a kind. Moses is remembered and how this book ends by basically being say, saying this. Moses was one of a kind. Now, he was one of a kind in terms of intimacy with God, and he was one of a kind in terms of his ministry. So we'll focus on verse 10 here for intimacy. Verse 10. But since then, there has arisen in Israel, a, there has not arisen in Israel, a prophet like Moses. Now, what made him unique? Whom the Lord knew face to face. Now, when you think of Moses being one of a kind, like I said earlier, it's hard to imagine a greater example of intimacy. He was described as a friend of God in Exodus 33, 7 through 11. We won't turn there for the sake of time. But he interacted with God as a friend. And what promotes strong friendships? Closeness, proximity, intimacy. Those are the things that promote friendships. When you think about what is the foundation of any close friendship or relationship in general? Well, trust and faith in another? Are you likely to trust somebody you don't know? So it has to do with familiarity and experience. Trust develops as a result of living life with people. Ultimately, trust is the byproduct of trustworthiness. So how did Moses learn to be a friend of God? He learned to trust God. Why did he learn to trust God? Because he saw God's faithfulness. He saw God's dependability. He saw God's reliability. And so he grew over time to be a friend of God, to have that intimacy with God. Now, what's the alternative to friendship? To be God's enemy. Can a Christian positionally be God's enemy? No. Can a Christian practically be God's enemy? Yes. The Bible says that in James chapter 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself, not positionally, but practically, an enemy of God. So Moses, though, talked about being one of a kind. In terms of intimacy, he was first of all described as a friend of God. Then if you were to go on to Exodus chapter 34, you would see that Moses is described by having a shining or glowing face. Now, not all of the time, but when he was in the presence of God, he became an actual physical reflection of God's brightness, of God's glory. Now, that's not something that we can be literally, but we can figuratively be a reflection of God's goodness. So in Exodus 34, 29 through 35, if we had more time, we could look at that. But what would happen is that before the tabernacle was built, Moses, he set up a tent. He set up a, set up a tent of meeting, and he went and he met with God regularly. He said when Moses went into that tent, the cloud came down over the tent. And that when Moses came out, his face was so bright that it was off-putting to the people around him. In fact, talk about, uh, it's probably, probably too soon for this, but talk about putting on a mask. Moses had to put on a veil because his face was so bright because he was such a reflection of that personal intimacy with God. Think about being so close to God in your life that your face is so bright that people have to turn away from you. They don't want to look at you. You know that the Bible promises that will be true of you as you're faithfully experiencing and living life intimately with God? That as you're a reflection of Him, you'll be so bright that people will be off-put. They'll want nothing to do with you. They'll turn away from you. They'll literally turn away from you. Can you see what an amazing correlation that is to your life? Talk about being having a, a face that is bright like the sun because it's a reflection of God in your life? That was literally true of Moses and it can be true in your life too as there's visible evidence in your life of your closeness to God that people can see. Now, should your focus be on what other people see? No, your focus should be on him. But as your focus is on him, people are going to see him in you. That's a fact. That's what the Bible says. You will be a reflection of him, but only when you're enjoying that closeness to him. Now, the third thing that Moses is described as that makes him unique in terms of intimacy, one of a kind, is he's, he's described with this face-to-face -face contact, very similar to his shining face, but this face-to-face -face 
contact with God. And we read about that in verse 10. Whom the Lord knew face to face. Now you can read about it in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8 too. Now for the context, God had chastised Aaron and Miriam for rebelling against Moses. And so in chastising the people, God describes his unique relationship with Moses. And this is what it says. I speak with him. Now this is different from you, Miriam and Aaron. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Remember, he couldn't see him directly. So even face to face, it has to do with closeness of proximity, not with actually looking at the face of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? If you realize how close he is to me and how he is being directed and led by me, how dare you rebel against him if he's my servant and he's serving me? That's the, that's the effect of what God is saying to Miriam and Aaron in Numbers chapter 12, 8. Now, briefly, in terms of ministry, there's none like Moses either. He was one of a kind. Let's look at these last two verses, 11 and 12. Verse 11, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, he was unique before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. So that's one way his ministry was unique. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. His ministry was very unique. The Lord used him to lead and serve others. And I think that is, there's some uniqueness to the power and the demonstration of God through Moses that makes him one of a kind. And that's why he's held up that way in verses 10 through 12 here. What a fine way to describe the end of his life. But the thing that I hope you take away from how Moses is described is that Moses is described as one who is willing to serve the Lord by serving others. Moses is ultimately remembered as a servant. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, it says this about Moses. And Moses indeed was faithful, so he's, remi- he's remembered as being faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. So what was Moses held up in the New Testament as being remembered for? Being faithful as a servant. Now, who else does that make you think about? So you talk about some of these correlations between Jesus as the perfected Moses or the second Moses or the second Redeemer, however you want to make those correlations between some of, that, some of those overlaps between Moses as a reflection or illustration or a Uh, foreshadowing of Jesus. But who else was described that way? Well, Jesus himself. Who knows Mark 10, 45? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That servant-mindedness. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, this mind of humility. He made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what Moses is held up as an example of. Who else is noteworthy in the Bible that is referred to and remembered as a servant? Paul. Paul in Philippians 1.1, Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1. He introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. So you think about what are the things that make somebody a success story when it comes to the things of faith? being successful all of the time? No, in this very same closing chapter or summary of Moses' life, his failure is held up there too. But what is also held up there is his success, and his success is being remembered as God's servant, being a servant of the Lord. What a way to be remembered. Being remembered as somebody who is most often willing to serve God by being willing to serve the others that God put in his life. Yes, Moses served the Lord. Yes, Moses was was faithful at times, not all the time, but as a rule. But Moses was faithful by being willing to serve the Lord by serving others. That's the takeaway that you should get when you think about the life of Moses and why that should be held up in a way that we could take as an example or even emulate. So Deuteronomy, as we close up the book here, Deuteronomy represents the final paternal advice that a loving father provides his children. 
The advice that Moses has given as we've gone through this book, it it includes calls to remember, warnings against future dangers, directions for responding to life as it comes. We've looked at a lot of it. We've skimmed across some parts of it, but we've covered it all now, 34 chapters in Deuteronomy. And heeding those instructions that Moses has wanted to finalize his life by recalling, those are a matter of life and death. Remember the theme, choose life. Moses is saying, this advice I'm giving you to, to you in love. And I'm reminding you of these things. I'm instructing you in these things. I'm lifting these things up for your consideration because they're the difference between life and death. And God provides you and I with the same kind of advice or direction in his word. Now, this is part of it written for our benefit, but it wasn't written directly to us. It was written for our benefit. As God has written and instructed church-age truth to church-age believers, he has many instructions that he gave us too. And he gave them to us with the idea that they would benefit us because he's good all of the time and he's always on our side. So then the question becomes, will you choose life by being willing to heed his instruction in your life? As he says, I know better than you do. Would you trust me with that? Do you see how much I love you? Now would you trust me as I seek to guide and direct you? Do you see that I am more knowledgeable than you? That I'm wiser than you? That I'm the only wise God? Do you see that? Now would you trust me? Would you allow me to direct and lead your life? Would you take the instructions that I give you for what they're intended to be, beneficial to you? Or would you go through life continuing to try to make excuses justify your unwillingness to trust the Lord and take him at his word. Say, I'll trust those things that you instruct me about, but I'll do my own thing when it comes to these other things. You must not know better than me about that because I I want so desperately to think this way or act this way. So I'm not going to trust you with that. I'm going to turn away from you in those moments and I'm going to do my own thing because I have determined that I can best direct for my own well-being. Not you, God. Is that how you're going to go through life? Are you going to keep doing that over and over again? Am I going to keep doing that over and over again? Where I say, God, your advice is good in these ways, but I don't need your direction in these other ways. I can handle it. I know best. God's saying, child, trust me in all of your ways. Not some of your ways. All of your ways. That will be the path to success. That's what it means to choose life. To trust me in everything, not just some things. Do you see that, child? That's what Moses has been saying to his children, his figurative children, the nation of Israel. So I pray when you think about what do I pray the takeaway is for this church family from this book, the study of Deuteronomy. I pray that we wouldn't reject his instruction. Rejecting God's instruction is the same as rejecting him. I hope we would want to trust him, to lean into him, to depend on him, to rest in him, to walk with him, to live life with him, not to exclude him. I pray that your takeaway is the same as that which was revealed to Moses. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 16 is how we'll end this book. It says this, See, I have set before you today life and good in contrast to death and evil. That's the choices that are in front of you. In that I command you today to do what? To love the Lord your God We love him because he first loved us. To walk in his ways. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And keep his commandments. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. His statutes and his judgment. That, with what purpose in mind? That you may live. It's the difference between life and death and what Moses was screaming effectively through this book to the nation of Israel was choose life. What I hope we take away from this is choose life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your time, the time we could spend in it. Thank you that you're such a good God. Thank you that you know what's best. 
that you haven't hidden it from us. You've revealed it to us. Pray that we would trust you enough to heed your instruction and direction for our lives that we wouldn't lean on our own understanding. We'd walk with our eyes fixed on you, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that as we keep our eyes on you, your spirit would be able to undertake and direct in our lives to make our lives count for eternity so that we really would be choosing life instead of wasting life. Pray that that could be true of each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.